Hello everybody and welcome back to the Ghoul Guide Association. We are of course your Ghoul Guides, I'm Lauren. And I'm Mary. And we are back again today with the continuation of our series all about the very gothic history of witches and witchcraft. So if you missed the first episode, why are you here? Uh, go and watch or listen to that one that's an order from your ghoul guide we'll put a link right here um in this if you're watching on youtube we'll include a link or if you're um listening on any other podcast platform the link to the previous episode will be in the description so yeah Mm -hmm. pause right now and uh, go and watch or listen to that yep so last time we talked all about the greco-roman origins of witchcraft and the development of the concept of witchcraft in pre-christian culture and mythology we talked about how it started to crop up in literature, particularly uh, classics like Jason and the Argonauts and uh, Homer's Odyssey. And today we are going to be moving forward through the skein of history. Through time and space. (laughs) (laughs) Join join us as as we move through time and history and space. (laughs) Today on the Ghoul Guides. Yeah, so I guess let's just jump right yeah, into let's it. Do it. Um yeah, cool. Um we have a lot to get through, I think. This is quite a big topic and a big area of witchcraft. So yeah, let's let's just go ahead. And as as we mentioned, we're we're jumping ahead a bit. Our last episode we were talking about witchcraft in ancient Greece and um Rome. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna be focusing on witchcraft in Europe in the medieval or early modern period so it is a little bit a little bit a little bit we're talking post-establishment of christianity Mm -hmm. yeah i was gonna say something really negative i'm not going to i'm gonna keep it to myself (laughs) you can tell me after (laughs) this period is really where i think a lot of well-known narratives and tropes and trends of witchcraft that we're familiar with today get established oh absolutely and thank you for mentioning christianity because yeah a lot of what happens in this period is shaped by the dominant cultures um, and religion which was basically just christianity this is very different from the cultures that produce witches and goddesses of ancient greece and rome like hecate and, and circe because christianity is so foundational I first wanted to talk about what the Bible actually says about witches. Mm-hmm. Um, so, question to you, Lauren, are there any witches in the Bible? All I know is that at some point in some Christian religious text that may be apocryphal, maybe the Bible, someone says thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. We will get to that, but that is more of a directive, Ooh. which I guess does does assume that there there are witches or we'll we'll get to the translation of that. I figured there must be. If if someone's yeah. telling you that you can't suffer something to live, it must be real. We'll put a pin in that for now. Um, because basically there is one really famous witch in the Bible, and that is the witch of Endor. Oh yeah. I so yeah. fun story. I actually don't know anything <laughs> about the witch of Endor. I only know that there is a witch of Endor because as a child well, young teenager, back in the days of dial-up internet when I was Googling Star Wars, I thought The Witch of Endor was like a fun Star Wars story and I was really disappointed to discover it was about the Bible. Yeah, well, okay, if anyone is interested, you can go and read 1 Samuel, which is where she um, features. Um, I don't know, is she in Star Wars? Uh, Endor is a Endor is a forest moon where the Ewoks live and it's where the final battle between the Rebellion and the Empire happens in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> 
If you have any theories as to how the Witch of Endor is created <laughs> to the uh, Forest Endor, then please do uh, get in touch with us. Um, but yeah, this kind of story focuses on an, an unnamed woman mm-hmm. in Endor, which was a place. Um, and it's often she's often referred to as the Witch of Endor. Um, and she's just one of many kind of individuals in the Bible who is associated with magic and sorcery. Others, for example, include Moses. Yeah. Um, and I think we can all remember the really really cool like kind of magic rap battle that Moses does with the you know the the Egyptian sorcerers you know where they're they're turning sticks into snakes and things yeah yeah so it's not like magic isn't in the bible but there's only really one witch and basically in the story King Saul wanted to seek advice from the prophet Samuel who was dead so quite hard to kind of have a quick chat so He went to visit this woman who could supposedly connect him with the dead. And so this woman then functions as a medium. She performs a ritual and then Samuel speaks through her. So Saul gets to speak to Samuel, but through this woman. However, not everyone agrees about what exactly is happening here. So some believe that she was a ventriloquist, you know, in that supernatural sense. She, it was actually the prophet Samuel who was speaking through her. So a spirit medium. Yep. Or that perhaps it wasn't Samuel speaking at all. Maybe it was the devil who was, you know, pretending and playing a prank on both of them. Because, you know, obviously that's necromancy and that's bad and would never be sanctioned by God. Yeah. You know. Is it necromancy? I mean, in terms of Dungeons and Dragons, Speak with Dead is a necromantic spell. But I've always thought this, like, you know, when we were talking back in our Ouija episode, when we were talking about spiritualism, it's not like a zombie or... Oh, so you're saying that any anything anything or anybody that comes back from the dead is basically practicing necromancy, like, I don't know, Lazarus and Jesus? What I'm saying is, how are those the same thing? I don't know. I obviously don't, I don't believe that, sorry, spoiler, <laughs> yeah. don't believe that spirit mediums are a thing. No disrespect. I, it's my personal belief. But I personally wouldn't categorize channeling. Like, if channeling is is something mm. that you can actually do. One would assume that the spirit can sense to be channeled with. So I kind of wouldn't think of it as being necromantic because usually necromancy, part of the reason it's big bad, no, no, don't do that is because it like takes free will and consent away. So I just feel like it's misrepresentation. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and I think, sure. And, and I think that, you know, we are obviously coming at it from our 21st century understanding of what necromancy has now been established to be. Um, but yeah, anyway... Others, like you, with your declaration against <laughs> spirit mediums, others also believe that maybe maybe she was just faking. So rather than, like, you know, the devil using her to put on a show, maybe she was just... Well, if King knocks on your door and is like, hey, I need you to channel the spirit for me, you're not going to be like, sorry, go away, because he might behead you. Also, he's probably got coin. Yeah, yeah. Which I am going to use this story to um, link us to King James um, and get us back to that kind of early modern witchcraft period. So King James was the monarch of Scotland and England in the 16th and 17th centuries. And for this podcast, he is important because of two of his publications. So Lauren, asking you a question again, do you know what these are? Uh... The Malaeus Maleficarum. No. Oh no, what's it called? Isn't it? But you're talking about his... Yes, what's his witch book called? His book on, his book on demonology. Ah, that's it. And I should remember yeah. that because I had a rant about it in the <laughs> Warren's episode. Yeah. Yeah. James is one of those people where I'm always like, you had a lot of time for a man that ruled two countries. Yeah. 
But yeah, so he has the text on demonology. Didn't that have a Latin name as well, or am I mis- am I mushing my texts together? Demonology is spelt in a Latin way. <laughs> if that, I, I don't know how to. It sound, It looks like it would sound exactly the same. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but yeah, so the other one was the King James edition of the Bible. I thought you. <laughs> so if you're, if you're, no, yeah, yeah, but it, you know, but, yeah, but like if you're ever wondering, like why is why is it called the King James yeah. version of the Bible or the King James Bible? It's this King James, and he didn't write the Bible. Spoiler, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> um, but <laughs> this edition was originally commissioned in 1604, and then it was published in 1611, and it was sponsored and commissioned by King James, which is why it's called the King James Bible. He also didn't... He's just taken other people's credit. Yes, he is. But I think it is important to associate this with him because would it have been as fundamental and as important if it if it weren't associated with the king? Yeah, that is very true. Um, who, as we know, is literally God on and earth. He, in particular, really thought of himself as God on earth. I think it's probably important, isn't it, as well? Yes. Like, not only was this a royal sanctioned yeah. Bible, it was by a man who was like, I am the divine right of kings. Yeah. Yeah. So this was not the first English translation of the Bible, but it, it was also known as the authorised version and being sanctioned by James meant that it was hugely influential. I actually didn't know that. I thought it was the first. Not- no, I thought it was the first. Yeah. I had always been taught, obviously wrongly, but I'd always thought it was the first English language version. That's really interesting. There was an earlier version and I the name of the name of it escapes me. Um, but yeah, this was the I think at least the second official wow. kind of one or, or the second kind of complete one but this one is without a doubt the most important yeah it's it has been described as one of the most important books in English culture and I think even to today it remains like a driving force in shaping like English the English speaking world oh yeah I think isn't like most I know the edition and not that my family are religious but the one copy of the bible we had was a King James bible yeah and there are, you know, um, we're not sponsored by this. So, you know, there are... <laughs> guys, sponsored by the King James Bible. <laughs> there are other versions available. Why is this version of the Bible important when we're talking about witchcraft, though? Mm-hmm. And it's because, as you mentioned already, of that really infamous verse from Exodus twenty two eighteen, which says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. If we think about this as a a book in translation you know so it's Mm -hmm. an English translation of Hebrew and Greek and and Aramaic texts this word isn't necessarily always translated in the same way and actually another translation of this verse switches out witch for poisoner which is quite subtly different yes but that does make sense because when I was doing my research for the last episode about Greco-Roman I and I mentioned this in the episode that um witch was used kind of like interchangeably for mostly women's professions so like herbalist seer midwife chanter like they were all called witch and I mean, if you think about things like aqua tofana, like poisoning was particularly seen as like a women's art and like a women's magic. So actually, that probably goes back to the like Greek origins yeah. of witch as a term. 
which is really interesting because I've never I've never thought about going all the way back to like Greece and Rome and and but that that makes total sense. Well, yeah, because I guess you know if we think about how they were translating these texts back then, what they were often doing, it's not like now necessarily where we would be using a uh, dictionary. Google Translate. Oh yeah, Google Translate. <laughs> Taking a photo, like Google did AI do the job. But like you know, this is what they did with like obviously like the Rosetta Stone and stuff like that. Is where you mm. compare. So it's probably that somewhere someone's gone oh yeah poisoner is witch that word means witch and actually it didn't it meant poisoner but it could also mean witch because witch was an interchangeable term for a poisoner a herbalist a seer a midwife a healer and then freaking king james's sponsored translator has gone we hate women it says witch (laughs) yeah so yeah, so I think that is the 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 first publication, and I think that it, I think it's really interesting that we have this through line here between like these these ancient and kind of early modern periods. But if we turn to the second book then, which is as you know as, as we mentioned before, demonology, <laughs> not Malaeus Maleficarum, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, now, and I think this is what always makes me laugh is that obviously you know we're both British and we've had to suffer through a lot of kind of um, you know. Uh, media about royals and obviously everyone (laughs) talking about um prince harry's memoirs as being the most outrageous thing that the monarchy (laughs) has ever published yeah and i'm just i you know this whole way through i've been sat here being like do you not remember that time that like the literal king of england published what was essentially philosophical treaty about witches and witchcraft like maybe that's a little bit more embarrassing um (laughs) yeah no. but um <laughs> i know as a, as a scholar of you know british nationalism i know which i would prefer to read yeah yeah but yeah so this was first published in 1597 mm-hmm. um and then it was later republished in 1603 so it did come out before translated uh. version of the king james bible but it was republished when he took the throne of england because you know obviously that's what you would do when you've just gained another country in the throne of a country be like I must publish like my best and and most you know favoritist work it's like you know when <laughs> you know when a group releases their debut single yeah. and then they get really popular like yeah. Pillars did this yeah they get really popular with the second single, so they release the first single now they're popular yeah. he was like shit now I'm king of great britain like <laughs> yeah or like you know when like um a book a, a film but that was an anachronism a film version comes out and then like you republish the book like oh now a major motion picture <laughs> <laughs> or when when Twilight came out and they republished an edition of wuthering heights that was like bella's favorite book <laughs> yes so the king's is about witches so this is all of that. <laughs> um, this rebrand James the first. <laughs> if you and obviously you know all of his all of his most loyal fans would have both editions. But... Oh yeah, <laughs> they were like, I liked him when it was James the sex. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what? What is this work really about? It it basically discusses ideas surrounding necromancy, divination, and black magic in ancient periods, but also his contemporary society, and it includes a study of demons and demonology. And then, of course, um, this book not only discusses uh, witches, but it explicitly endorses the practice of witch hunting. Mm-hmm. 
So, speaking directly to his reader, James opens the book by stating, and please forgive me, this is written in kind of like early modern English. So um, if I say, yeah, it's, uh, I will be um, not translating, but the fearful abounding at this time in this country of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches or enchanters hath moved me, brackets, beloved reader and brackets, (laughs) dispatch in post this following treaties of mine to resolve the doubting both that such assaults of Satan are most certainly practised and that the instrument thereof merits most severely to be punished. And what does he have to say of the Witch of Endor? Because, yeah, obviously, like, Mm -hmm. James is going to talk about the most, like, well, the only, like, um, individual witch in the Bible. He um, categorises her as Saul's Pythoness. Oh. And he compares her, you might like this, to the ancient Greek oracle Pythia. Oh. So he's basically, to kind of sum up what he's saying, witches are real, witches are bad, we should punish them. And it's even in the Bible because like yeah. this this witch, <laughs> this witch is basically a serpent. Yeah. He's kind of like proto-gothicizing there as well. Because even though mm. I know I said, yeah. oh, the whole thing about Barbarus is Barbarus was non-Hellenic. But he's doing that very Puritan Protestant thing of saying anything that is pre-Christian, anything that is not in the name of yeah. Jesus is evil, is, you know, sinful, is is barbaric and is other. So he's kind of doing that early on. Can I just say, one of the things that always gets me about James 6 plus 1 is how <laughs> does the son of such a badass woman like Mary Queen of Scots and yeah. the heir slash cousin nephew to Elizabeth I, I mean, this is probably why he does it, because he's like solidifying his power, come in and be like, you know what, witches, let's kill women. <laughs> we are going to come back to James the first, unfortunately, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you're enjoying our kind of discussion of James the first. We're going to come yeah. back to him in a little bit. Um, I'm okay with that. And maybe, maybe, maybe we will answer that question. Thank you. But yeah, for now, I think just to kind of sum up where we are, give a little TLDR. Um, nice, nice. Yeah. There were biblical foundations to early modern concepts of witches. So basically, Christian interpretations were actively using the Bible as as a foundation. Mm-hmm. And previously, the existence of witches and witchcraft had been denied by Christianity, and it was considered to be a pagan superstition. So exactly like what you said, looking back to ancient Greece, it was kind of like, well, these are like pagans, and they're just, you know, they're doing stuff, and they're doing bad stuff, and that's not what we do. And even if we go back to Moses, you know, I really like this example, because a lot of Christian interpretations are like, well, Moses was doing this stuff. He was turning like a rod into a snake because of the power of God. But all of those Egyptian sorcerers were doing black magic, which is bad. That kind of works within, even within the, it's Mm. not quite theology, is it? But like, that was the thing that like witchcraft was based on an individual's power and communion mm. with a potentially divine but not necessarily divine figure yeah so it was kind of easy if early christianity is also dealing with the fact that it's monotheism and you've got all these pantheons and you're saying those pantheons are shit they're not true they're all superstition so if the pantheons aren't real then witchcraft can't be real because the existence of witchcraft would imply the existence of this alternative pantheon so it's like early Christianity says, yeah, witchcraft, full of shit, only one God. Anything that anything that yeah. people in the Bible do is because God is giving them power. 
enter the devil um, but yeah, yeah like that yeah. makes that makes so much sense in terms of you think about the structure of a religion and the re the retelling and the reframing of previous history and mythology then you have to basically delegitimize and depower all of those yeah. things so yeah it makes a lot of sense that early christians were like no there's no witches babe yeah it was seen as pagan superstition and just people being a little bit you know weird but <laughs> but and this is why i think this period is really interesting works like the king james bible and also james's own like demonology they they signal a, a shift in mainstream christianity where witches are not only real but they're also seen as a threat so it's no longer, you know, pagan superstition and and weirdos who are not mm-hmm. not working in reality, but there there are these evil entities and these these people who are working with the devil explicitly to harm Christians and Christianity. And biblical interpretations were often used to promote often a gender view of witches, although this isn't necessarily exclusively like gendered, um, but also to promote witch hunts. So yeah, in this kind of perspective, this is where you get the idea that witchcraft is bad, it's connected to the devil, and so witches must be killed. Rude. Yeah, yeah, which brings us to the European witch hunt. So that was kind of our biblical kind of foundations, um, and now we're going to get to the actual witch hunts themselves. Yeah, we've done a hop, skip and a jump (laughs) through about 1500 years of history, (laughs) Um, and now we're into the witch trials. Also, fun fact, did you know that some people think that the reason that there was werewolf trials in other European countries and not in the in like the UK is because we eradicated wolves by the mid 1500s. And then it was like, shit, we need something. We need someone else to blame bad things on. (laughs) So rather than being like, oh, werewolves, because wolves, you know, were a major predator. They were like, oh, no, women. (laughs) Women and transgressive people. Oh, no, outsiders. (laughs) Those are the same as wolves. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) yeah just one of those things where you come across a fact and you're like whatever that phenomenon's called where you notice something that's relevant to the thing that you're doing yeah yeah no thing and maybe maybe we should look into werewolf trials that sounds great um i know i didn't know there was werewolf trials neither did i so store that one away (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. 100 that we we will be coming back to that maybe <laughs> um okay witch trials so these trials and witch hunts took place predominantly in europe from about 1400 to about 1782 although there was a peak period of between 1560 and 1630 so during this period this kind of big um kind of from the, mm-hmm. the 15th to the 18th century Obviously, it's really hard to to get an exact number, but sources estimate that about 100,000 trials occurred across Europe. Some trials could last for years, um, and suspects were then kept in prisons and subject to poor conditions and continual tests and torture. About 40,000 to 60,000 people were killed as suspected witches during the peak, which is Mm -hmm. quite a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Especially when you think of yeah, the population yeah. numbers at that period of time. Because this is all... They would have been smaller. Yeah, yeah. We're also talking about periods of time that, you know, had epidemics and... Is it technically pandemic? We don't know if it was worldwide. But epidemics across Europe frequently. So, yeah, not a huge population yeah. size. So that is a lot of people. And many of these people were, you're probably thinking, burned at the stake. Yes, a lot of them were burned at the stake, but there were also a lot of people who were hanged. Mm -hmm. So these were the kind of two main ways that you died. Obviously, assuming that you didn't die in jails. Yeah, Um, or getting fucking dumped or any of the other stupid shit that they did. But 
In England and Scotland, there were several acts, including the Witchcraft Act of 1563, mm-hmm. or the Act Against Conjurations, Enchantments and Witchcrafts. And this act, because yes, it was an actual like political legal act that got passed and had the sanction of the monarch, it formally criminalised witchcraft, it imposed the death penalty in certain, certain circumstances, and it also, interestingly, transferred witch trials from the church to secular courts. So this was very much a kind of thing that you didn't necessarily need to have to be sanctioned by the church. Obviously, most people were doing it from within yeah. that kind of Christianity community. But also you could just go out and or, or as a government, you could send a kind of um, investigator or something to. Well, I guess even at that point in time, it kind of is legitimizing, mm. it, isn't it? If it's yeah. secular and it's baked into state national law rather than church law, then it's even at this time where like the word of the church is kind of the word of the law it's making it like a constitutional yeah thing. exactly although again with britain because we have a um constitutional monarchy that is also the head of the church of england and with yeah. the divine right of kings that does kind of you know anything that the monarch does and that the government does is also tied to the church of england but but it, it was through the kind of government branches and those kinds of things but what about the magna carta Mary? <laughs> what about it <laughs> also did you know you mentioned a lot of people a lot of these people died in jail um a big reason for that was not just because of typhoid fever um you had to pay oh, yeah. in jail if you wanted food or anything like that prior to the reforms in the 18th century if you were in prison, you had to pay to be there. And if not, you got chucked in the pits. Just, yeah, ridiculous to me. Which was horrendous. Yeah, I can't work because I'm in jail, but yeah, you expect me to pay. <laughs> yeah. Can't work because you're in jail. And if you can't pay, you literally got thrown down a pit with the rats. And chances of surviving were very slim. Yeah. So yeah, if you're also thinking, this is this sounds like a lot, and you're talking about Christianity, but which flavour of Christianity is, is doing all of these bad things about witches? you may be horrified to learn that it's all of them. Um, so both Catholic... I was going to say, check all the buses. Yeah, both Catholic and Protestant regimes targeted witches and, and well, those suspected of witchcraft. Um, so in Catholic Spain and Portugal, witchcraft trials were undertaken as part of the Inquisition. But these trials were actually less common because the Inquisition itself focused more on, on heresy investigations, looking at people who were spe- suspected of being Jews, because the Inquisition was very anti-Semitic, and also people who were heretics and um, like anti-government and, and working against the kind of Spanish and, and Portuguese. Yeah, they used it against a lot of Moorish people as well, particularly the heresy, witchcraft, all blended into one. Yeah. It was used to, to force a lot of Moors out. Yeah. So they did have witchcraft trials, but these were often either part of or taken over by other kinds of heresy investigations. There were also mass witch trials in certain areas of su- southern Germany, which the so this area at the time was kind of under the control of Catholic prince bishops. Wow. And these trials lasted for years and they would end with the mass kind of execution of hundreds of men and women and children so it was kind of like a long drawn out thing where lots and lots of people would would be killed regardless of like age or gender that's horrific i wonder if that's the reason why there's so many witch tales that come out of those areas of germany or what then became germany yeah i 
have chosen some examples at, at to awesome. kind of finish this this episode, but they are based in Britain. But I think, yeah, if we do want to come back mm. to witchcraft or, or if anyone listening wants to kind of um, suggest another topic, I think, yeah, Germany sounds like a really interesting place that I, I don't know um, that much about. Um, but yeah, as I said, like there were also, you know, lots of trials that took place in England and Scotland and other Protestant countries such as the Netherlands also had a significant period of witch trials. So yeah, this was very much widespread across Europe, lots of countries, lots of different kinds of Christian mm-hmm. um, kind of communities that, that undertook them. And now what I want to do quickly is turn to a book that you have already mentioned before. Yay! And I hope that you didn't think that I was ignoring you when you said that, because yes, we also do need to talk about the Malaeus Maleficarum. No, I'm just glad that I'm not an idiot and that is a thing. <laughs> oh, 100%. I was like, shit, did I, did I make that up? Is that from a video game? Because at first my brain, my brain always gives me the Necrocomicon and I'm like, that's not that's not it that's made this, up yeah I mean, this, made up, you know what I mean this was a period not only before the internet not only before like film and tv but it was also where the main thing that you would do for fun or or for you know if, if you were learned or, or that was write books or write volumes or investigate mm-hmm. things and so in this period where as we mentioned witchcraft and witch hunts were sanctioned by church organizations but also governments and so mm-hmm. writing books about witches and witch hunts and how to spot a witch or even just you know pushing back a little bit and investigating whether or not they really exist there are there are tons of these kinds of volumes but like james's demonology malaeus maleficarum is is one of the most influential books to come out of this period and that this was written by a German Catholic clergyman and also inquisitor um, called Heinrich oh. Kramer. And it was first published in Germany in 1486. So it's quite an early text. Oh, it's early. Really early. It was. And it was translated into English as the Hammer of the Witches, which I just think is a really fun title. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great band name. Yeah. He was condemned by the church. So the Catholic church, <laughs> you know, every now and then you see someone and you're like, is this, are you, are you really like representing established view of like whatever religious organization? And then you look them up and it's like, no, this person has yeah. been like, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, it's like schism, schism, yeah. schism, schism. Sometimes enforced schism, sometimes voluntary yeah. schism. But again, and, uh, you know, again, you can see this in like recent kind of examples, but this, you know, uh, exile or excommunication or whatever mm-hmm. only adds to like the popularity of such texts. Oh my like, God. I, I have been thinking this recently, looking at some, <laughs> because this is what you do when you're autistic and a researcher, you do fun research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been doing some fun research as I like to do on cult leaders. And yeah, it's really fascinating. And obviously we we see this as well with like figures like Trump or Jordan Peterson, where it's like once the quote unquote mainstream media disavows somebody, they often gain popularity. And the same is true right through history, the the early second and third century Christian cults and the weird 12th and 13th century secret orders and religious movement. Once you make something other instantly gains traction yeah 100 and i i think yeah like maybe trump's not the right example there but like i think it's a pretty good example of that kind of yeah being disavowed by these established organizations and then that kind of that pushback being something that helps 
helps um, yeah. to popularize. I guess with Trump, it was more he tried to claim that mm. that's what had yeah. been done to him to get that same popularity. But like, yeah, you get those people that are like on the fringe slash literally yeah. cult leaders. So we know what the King James Bible says. It says that, you know, we shouldn't allow witches to live. So therefore they must die. We also know what demonology says that witches are bad and should die. So any guesses as to what um, the Malaeus Maleficarum suggests or says about witches? Well, I apparently thought that the Malaeus Maleficarum was demonology, so I'm actually not sure. I know that, or um, I actually don't know now, I'm not sure. I feel like one of them talks about things like familiars and third nipples and all of those weird things that we... Basically, I was doing a setup there and in the... Like the other two texts, it also argues that witches are evil and should be punished by deaths. So yeah, like cool. the the things that are different about them are, I guess, some of the discussions and the methods. But ultimately, I think what's important is that all of these texts are basically suggesting that the only way to, to solve a, a witch problem because obviously witches are a problem, um, is, is to kill them. Mm. Um, it also links them to heretics, and it says that like heretics, witches should be burned at the stake. This text also says that torture can be used to get confessions, um, and that torture is good, <laughs> and that, that. <laughs> torture followed by death is the only certain way to end, quote, the evils of witchcraft. So, you know, I think it's... Um... <laughs> Imagine you you go to the bookshop and you just want a nice little guide on how to make a poppet and you see the hammer of the witches and you think, yes, I'm a witch and I want to know about my hammer. And then you open that and you're like, oh, good I think God. it's really interesting because it's often it often comes up in a lot of popular medium, like media, as a kind of witchy book. And it's like, yes, it is a witchy book. But it's yes. not really in the way that you think. Um, so, like other, yeah, like other texts, it also suggests that witchcraft is not only connected with Satan, but, and this is a quote, that witchcraft is a heresy, I say, of sorceresses, since it is to be designated by the particular sex over which he is known to have power. So, this is not only a pact with the devil, but it's a sexual relationship. And this work in particular really helped to promote the idea that witches, that, you know, the, the sex specific idea that witches were women. And I have to say, I think Kramer is really just like a lot of men just railing against the fact that women maybe don't want to have sex with him <laughs> or that he's had some bad experiences with women in the past. And he's really like, he's an incel. Putting a lot of that kind of anger about, on, about women onto just, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a bad relationship that he had. Yeah. This is his instant manifesto. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, yeah, I know I said last time that like, you know, witchcraft, people were trialed for witchcraft in like Greco-Roman societies, but it was more, if you think that witchcraft is real and someone's cursed you or you've caused someone's crop, like that would be a yeah. crime. It wasn't the fact that you had used magic. And I do sometimes wonder like how much of the divine feminine elements that were coming out of old pagan and pre-christian traditions that now i you know like i said last time there's figures that we now think of as being connected to witchcraft and that we'll talk about later on when we talk about like modern wicca and stuff that are revered as like deities of witchcraft and stuff like that and i wonder how much of it was like same with like oh gossiping's a sin you can't gossip just part of this like patriarchal campaign across the centuries to shut women and you know to not just women but but anyone other but predominantly in these you know in these 
instances women down and to stop to disempower women like no you can't talk to each other you can't share knowledge you can't have any divine femininity all that's bad you're just witches and I think you know as I said there were lots of texts here but the most Mm. important I think I would include the King James Bible yeah but also demonology and Malaeus Maleficarum I think are the probably the, the most important texts and I think it is notable that while I'm sure there were others that maybe did not advance this sex specific argument and we know that men were also targeted yep. often sometimes in, in some countries equally to or more than women. Um, but the, in our interpretation and working through these kinds of things, this is what has stuck and what essentially generations and centuries since have taken away from the witch trials. It's not only that witchcraft is bad, but that witchcraft is specifically gendered, yeah. which uh, yeah, I think is interesting. Some people think that this was perhaps used as like an as a kind of inquisitorial manual for witch trials mm. that was used by contemporary um, contemporaneous individuals as a kind of this is how you should put on a witch trial. But as Jenny Gibbons has said, this isn't necessarily true, um, and she says. Authors naively assumed that the book painted an accurate picture of how the Inquisition tried witches. Heinrich Kramer, the text's demented author, was held up as a typical Inquisitor. His rather stunning sexual preoccupations were presented as the church's official position on witchcraft. But actually, the Inquisition immediately rejected the legal procedures Kramer recommended and censured the Inquisitor himself just a few years after the Malaeus was published secular courts not inquisitorial ones resorted to the malaeus so it is influential but not by the church and the inquisition well that makes sense because the inquisition is almost like aggressively by the book and by the book i mean the biblical book like it's there's all there's almost no room for like it's like a fascism of fanaticism isn't it yeah but part of that fanaticism is big personalities and i think this personality was just not one that they wanted to endorse or support in any way but as she mentioned it was used by secular courts and um, the Encyclopedia Britannica says that the Malayas went through 28 editions between 1486 and 1600 so yeah King James with your two um, editions of demonology (laughs) eat your heart out Um, it was It was also used by Roman Catholics and Protestants as an authoritative source of information that concerned Satanism and as a guide to Christian defences against Satan. So, yeah, it again, it comes back to that idea of like you can push something outside of your kind of remit, but in doing so, you perhaps give them a larger platform. And yeah, maybe 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 Trump is the right way to look at this <laughs> this guy and his influence. Um, Same level of batshit crazy. And you know, um, negative outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so that is that is the Malaeus Maleficarum. Obviously, there's lots more that we can talk about it. Um, but what I want to do um for the kind of final part of this episode mm-hmm. is to just kind of look at some kind of areas in England and Scotland that had quite quite notable kind of witch hunts. And so yeah, if we go if we go back to or stick with King James. Um, and just talk a little bit about Scottish witch hunts. Yes. So it is estimated that between 3,000 and 4,000 people were accused of being witches 
and may have even been killed in Scotland in the years 1560 to 1707. So it's a very short period of time. Scotland, not that densely populated. So this is a, a large kind of proportion. And Scottish kind of witch hunts are, there's so many. And comparatively, like it's the, the proportion of how many people were accused mm-hmm. and killed of witchcraft is one of the the most significant kind of geographical areas, not just in like Britain, but also in terms of Europe. But what kind of started it? What got the ball rolling? And yes, thank you, King James. That goes back to him. So this starts with the North Berwick witch trials, mm-hmm. which were the trials that took place in 1590 of people in East Lothian in Scotland. And also it included um, people of St Andrews, Aldkirk, apologies for my pronunciation. And these trials ran for two years and they implicated over 70 people. And importantly, I think, like the accusation of witchcraft was that it took place on Halloween night and potentially implicated the monarch himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was the first major witchcraft persecution in Scotland. And the tribunals were actually ordered by our good friend King James. He had news of similar trials in Denmark, and these were relating to confessions of witchcraft, where those accused were basically charged with having caused a storm by their sorcery. You might think, oh, well, that seems a bit weird. Why is James getting involved in that? And it's because it involves a ship Mm -hmm. that he and his wife were on. He went to Denmark, got married to Anne. They came back. The journey back was a bit rocky, a bit stormy, quite bad, actually. Um, And this was then investigated in Denmark, and they found all these people that had apparently, um, probably under the duress of torture, confessed to, on Halloween, having consorted with the devil and caused this storm. James heard this and was like, huh, that's interesting. I'm going to do that myself as well. Um, So he set up similar trials, obtained similar confessions under torture, and then again, you know, probably mm-hmm. influenced him in writing his own publication. So this kind of predated slightly demonology. I wonder how much of this is about a young Protestant king mm. who at this point knows he is most likely the heir to the English throne as well as the Scottish throne, whose mother was a controversial figure because she was Catholic and she had been married to, you know, she, she'd been raised in France. I want, I do wonder, because witchcraft is so tied to heresy and things like that, like how much this was his genuine, and maybe he's one of those people where like he, it started out as a power play and then he came to fully believe it. But yeah, I'm not thought about the timeline in terms of like, it's around the time of his marriage. He specifically went and married a Protestant princess. There was still a lot of... Catholic families in Scotland he knew he was most likely going to be the first king of England and Scotland and how much of this was just this kind of show of I am the divine king like I am a powerful king I am a righteous king God has chosen me I enforce God's will on earth and I I think I think you've just hit the nail on the head like I think I think there are there are two sides to James's interest in witchcraft and we know that in these trials and also in, in the subsequent trials in Scotland, that heresy was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. And people were accused of being against the king and against the crown and the monarch and the country. And this was 
not just something you know diabolic and evil but something that was potentially you know also going up to the highest highest thing that you could get be you know other than other than god mm-hmm. who else is there on earth that that you know that is god's representative and that is the monarch so it's both a kind of are you threatening me but also i'm going to use this yeah. trial to implicate my yeah. my adversaries um but yes. i also think that yeah he's also a very young prince king and he probably did have a bad time on that boat and then also was thinking my wife my wife what if both of them had died and yeah. maybe that also then fueled his superstitions well, yeah, if you think about being being James Stewart, you are the last of two lines. You are the last Stewart. You are the last Tudor. There's already been all of this. Ca- I mean, he wasn't. There were other Stuarts like Arbella and people like that. But like Mary, Queen of Scots, had you know her dad famously like saw him died angry that she was a girl because his sons had died and he needed a prince. And there had been so much succession crisis and gender crisis wrapped up in mm-hmm. this lineage and he i i wouldn't have been surprised if he did it's no wonder when you think about it that he saw himself as a divinely blessed king because he if you looked at like all of the chaos that had gone from the war of the roses to the birth of james 6/1 it's no wonder that he was like that but yeah it would have also potentially i could i could totally see this as being part power play part belief and then as time goes on that blurring of the line between using Mm. something to re-establish your power and to be like if people thought that they were cursing me I need to come down hard on them even if I don't think they were and I think demons are real yeah well it's 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 handy you know I think you I think you're cursing me and I think this other person is a political opponent so I'll just get rid of both of you but yeah, I think I think it's always interesting to think about the witch trials in Scotland in in that kind of context, but also just the witch trials in Scotland and England because I think yeah, James did have such a big influence on um, you know, both of those countries. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that is a little a little kind of foray into Scottish witch witch trials and witchcraft. I can't, you know, we could do a whole episode on every single country and maybe in the future we will. Um, It's something that if you're enjoying this witch um, series and you want more of it, then I think there's definitely more to kind of delve into. But what I want to talk about now quickly is the uh, Pendle Witches, just because there's so much that I wanted to put in this episode. And I thought you were going to say something else. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, well. And I'm sure, have you got another bit after this? Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay, well, that makes sense. Because <laughs> I was like, she's obviously going to talk about this thing. Let's talk about the Pendle Witches first. Let's talk about the Pendle Witches. Because these, the Pendle Witch Trials is probably one of the most famous witch trials in mm-hmm. England. Um, and these took place in 1612. And as part of these trials, 12 men and women were accused and charged with the murders of 10 other people by witchcraft. 11 people then went to trial and then 10 were eventually found guilty and hanged. You might be thinking, you know, we've been talking about mass trials where hundreds of people have been killed or dozens of people have been killed. Like 10 isn't 10 isn't that many. But like out of the percentage of people who were accused, 12 original people were accused, yeah. 11 went to trial and then 10 were murdered. That is quite a lot of people who, yeah. who were found guilty and then they were hanged. And it's basically... 
is it one entire family or two entire families but it's like hmm. a whole like three generations of a family yeah so this the majority of these the people accused were women um and as you said it includes two families um so that's elizabeth southerns who was also known as demdike and anne whittle who's also known as chattox and both of these were both of these individuals were women in their 80s whose children and grandchildren were also accused um and they also include um alice natter and janet preston you might be familiar with these names these are this is like a really famous trial that has you know mm-hmm. it's all over kind of popular media and, and the internet well you know the I don't think it's true, but you know the family myth on my mum's side of the family, don't you? Yeah, yeah. But I, I know it because you've said it to me before, but you should <laughs> share this with okay. our listeners. My mum's grandmother, so my paternal great-grandmother? No, my mum's paternal great-grandmother, that's right. My mum's dad's mum. <laughs> Even though that they were from, like, they were from South London, but she maintained throughout her life that we were descended from the Pendle witches I was like when I found this out I was like oh I don't think that can be true because they killed the whole family um but there would have potentially been other relatives I managed to trace my family line back to Lancaster but only to the to the 18th century I could not get it back to the 17th century so it definitely had some lineage from that but the the family mythology is that we are on her side of the family descended from the Pendle witches so I've always had a bit of a fascination with them apart from being a gothicist because I don't, I th- don't think it's true <laughs> what, I think what, what if it is and, and what if you are actually a witch well that would be fucking awesome <laughs> my life generally is not that cool I mean it wouldn't be awesome because that means that somewhere in my family history like my family was murdered in a witch trial but it's always been a fun thing as like a I'll probably never know unless I get really famous and someone can take me on who you, who do you think you are because um, this is my free ancestry.com account <laughs> didn't, didn't take me far <laughs> enough back yeah yeah it's always been like it's always been a big point of interest to me I've always felt a bit of I mean it's a very sad story anyway um, yeah. I've always felt a bit of a weird emotional connection to it so yeah maybe yeah. I'm a maybe I'm a witch I mean aren't we all witches I got the vibes <laughs> you got the vibes <laughs> yeah um no I think I think that's really interesting though and I think you know maybe if maybe if someone wants to do some investigating you can help Lauren to trace her family line beyond the 18th century you know um get in touch um <laughs> <laughs> So if we go back, if we do go back to the Pendle Witches, um, there's lots of suggestions that these families, like many others in the areas, made their livings from healings. Mm -hmm. They used herbs and talismans to heal the sick. And it was a kind of like, you know, a local, like a local business. And there were also suggestions that perhaps the families were rivals and basically turned on each other. So maybe they both had these kind of like family businesses and they Mm -hmm. were encroaching on the um, and, and taking away business from the other. As well as this, Elizabeth Southerns or Demdike had in fact been believed to have been a witch for over 50 years. Yeah. So this is a woman in the 80s and there have been rumours and suggestions and gossip that she's been a witch for decades, you know, half a century. Well, you're a woman in your 80s, you've had kids, it's the 1500s, you know. Yeah, 
but I mean, you're a woman in your thirties. Why, you know? Yeah, true. But what I mean is, there was off. I think people that yeah. women that lived past sixty. Yeah. Like witchcraft was. Oh, that person must be a witch. Like you, you get a yeah. lot of that. Is it just an old woman who lives on the edge of town, or are they a witch, or are they yeah. both? And I think there's lots of that in in these kinds of stories about the Pender witches. And there were also, um, so part of the charges about this group included the accusation that they were transforming into animals or that they had spirit familiars. Um, and the allegation, so then there's also an allegation that Elizabeth Southerns or Demdike had a witch's mark on her body that mm-hmm. also then proved that she had allowed the devil to suck her blood. Um, so that I think what's interesting is that here there's two kind of popularized ideas connected to which witches in this period that witches could turn into animals and i think there's a really interesting story um about a hare in, yeah. involving involving the witches um but also that they had familiars so oh that old woman has got like all these kinds of like woodland creatures it's not a disney princess maybe she's a witch she's a hag <laughs> yeah yeah but then there's also this idea that like you had a kind of witch's mark and mm-hmm. <laughs> what is a witch's mark it's basically an area on their body that witches had said to satan this is where you can suck my blood from and i mean i don't know i think I'm not alone in thinking, you know, I've got lots of weird marks on my bodies. You know, you've got birthmarks, you've got moles. Yeah. All it takes is for someone to be like, what is that? I don't have that on my body. I think that's a witch's mark. Yeah. I've got um, a massive mark. There's many, yeah. there's many reasons I probably would have either been executed or locked up. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely probably would have been found guilty of having a witch mark. Yeah. So I think... I think this is a really interesting kind of um, witch trial to focus on. Um, and again, like there's so much more that we could say about it. And if you want an episode entirely on the Lancaster witches, where maybe we go, we dive more into Lauren's connection. We could finally go and do the Pendle Witch Trail. Yes. Yes. If you want that, then get in touch. Donate to our Kofi so we can pay for the petrol <laughs> and drive to Lancaster. <laughs> yes. Um, this is just a little a little snippet because finally the last thing that I want to talk about and again I think you can want, I guess can you do want to guess yeah can I guess is it yeah. Colchester Castle or the Colchester witches it's Essex <laughs> it's just Essex in general because I knew it would be if this if this is your first time tuning in um then you might not know that I am obsessed with Essex witches because I'm from Essex and I and Essex is known as the witching county um because I think not not to the kind of proportions that that Scotland had you know as we said like in terms of like the population of Scotland and then the amount of people who were accused and killed of witches it's not like that but Essex had so many people that were um accused and, and killed so historically Scottish even though we have been technically one nation since 1707 and the Act of Union, like Scottish, Welsh and Irish history is often not centralised in the way that English history is. So even though the Scottish witch trials mm. were bigger and more deadly, English history and and yeah. therefore British history has always centred that over it, which, you know, yeah, that's that's just part of a bigger thing. But they there's a there's a lot to be said about those Essex witch trials. There is a lot to be said, and I'm obviously not going to be able to touch on all of it. But there is one person in particular that I wanted to mention because I think it sets up our next episode quite nicely. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, so 
as you said, like Colchester Castle was a big part of the witch trials. There are a lot of women and men who were locked up there. Um, fun fact about Colchester is that it was the original capital of of England before London became the capital. But what I want to what I want to focus on is somebody called Matthew Hopkins, and this is going to be my the witch trial. <laughs> Well, I was going to say to you, who is Matthew Hopkins? But I, I guess from that, you already know. <laughs> You're not allowed to say it. it was such a stupid title. Well, yes. Do you know what? Do you know why it's stupid? Because do you know who gave it to him? He gave it to himself. <laughs> he made it up. He looked at himself <laughs> in the mirror one day and he said, oh, I'm the witch finder general. And yes, I know Shane and Ryan make this joke on BuzzFeed and Solved, but we have been saying this for years. This is one of the reasons why we fell in love with them so much because we were like, yes, yes. Can't say Colchester <laughs> properly or Essex properly, but you are totally okay. right about the witch finder general. <laughs> yeah, so just, I, I mean, it is a bit depressing to end this episode on on a man who is a murderer i would consider him one of the the earliest serial murderers in in british history yeah. and, and you know he was just a legitimate that's obviously up, obviously up for debate but he he basically he basically was an english witch hunter mm-hmm. who was active during the english civil war and he was the son of a puritan minister um Shock. which i just think is interesting <laughs> um and he went around essex just going to towns and accusing people of being witches, putting them on trial and then, um, you know... Executing them. Instigating their murders. Yeah. He apparently began his career as a witch finder after he overheard some women in a in a, in a a pub, I think, in Manningtree who, who were talking about their meetings with the devil. And, I mean, if I overhear a bunch of people talking about meeting with the devil, I am just going to run in the other direction. I do not want to. <laughs> be involved with that no thank you I mean as much um, as I'd be like oh, cool I'd also be like bad idea uh, yeah. um he then was like I have found a calling I'm going to become a witch hunter what does a witch hunter do they travel around investigating claims of witchcraft or inventing them. and he or inventing them he and his associates were particularly keen on finding witches marks yeah. and linking his victims to the devil so again we talked about that in terms of the in relation to the lancaster and pendle witches but this was very much also a key thing that matthew hopkins was like this is a surefire way to to mm-hmm. identify a witch he worked with someone called John Stern. There were also lots of other individuals operating at this time. But together, they sent more accused people to be hanged for witchcraft than all of the other witch hunters in England of the previous 160 years. Mm-hmm. So this is why I think, you know, serial killer or mass murderer, because he he alone is just literally going around yeah. pointing to people and saying, witch, yeah. kill them. And they were. Like his obsession with finding a physical mark, it, I mean, this is not, it's not new even at this point in time, but like it just doubles down on the demonizing of bodies that are other. Yeah. And like bodies yeah. that, because sometimes it would be like, oh, you've got a limp, which, oh, you're yeah. like, you had a baby with a birth defect, which it, it really solidified in English culture and English ideologies this concept that a physical, deformation or blemish or whatever it may be from something as simple as a a mole to something as you know serious as a a missing or like disabled limb must be some kind of sign of evil intention 
Yeah. And I, I think that's really important. You have not just the kind of political mechanics of being able to use witch trials to mm -hmm. control populations or to get rid of your political opponents, but also just on a kind of like individual level, it's it's really demonizing people for just who they are yeah. physically, you know, their 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 body or aspects of their body. So it's not even just what you do, but yeah. it is physically what you are matthew hopkins ableist yeah. incel narcissist yes we, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that just now because so his witch hunting career started in 1644 and then he retired in 1647 before dying of probably tuberculosis you know um but do you know how old he was he was quite young wasn't he yes so <laughs> i love films like the witch finder general which you know stars horror icon Vincent Price as the Witchfinder General, as the Witchfinder General, iconic. But I think it's such a miscasting because he was so much older. he was he was probably born around 1620, which makes him 24 at the age that he starts going around and you know causing violent chaos. Yeah. So he's basically the <laughs> what are we 16th century, like equivalent of. Those guys who graduate uni and then make a podcast or a YouTube and start spouting like their incel manifesto says the two girls that finished their PhDs and started a podcast, but it's different. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, oh man, he he literally just in his mid-twenties was like, I've decided that I am the general of all the witch finders, <laughs> witch finder supreme. I'm yeah. the best witch finder who ever found witches. Yeah. But I just, I just always think that even if people have heard of Matthew Hopkins or the Witchfinder General, most people are genuinely quite surprised when you say, no, actually he was 24 yeah. and then he died when they see he died before he hit 30. Yeah, like, you know. They're seeing like an older guy in a big yeah. hat in a black cloak, Vincent Price esque, yeah. if not Vincent Price, like definitely seeing like an older guy. And, no, some fucking... and I think thinking about this as as, you know, a, a boy in his twenties essentially, you know, like a man boy it, frontal lobe has not yeah. finished developing <laughs> I think it does kind of recontextualize some of these um things you know the the witch child things but before he died not only did he murder a lot of people he also because this was the thing that everyone was doing published a book oh yeah, yeah of course he did this book is called the discovery of witches I thought it was going to become um, <laughs> finding witches <laughs> the Matthew Hopkins tale <laughs> Witches 101. <laughs> My life in witches. All the witches. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he basically, in this book, outlines his witch hunting methods. Mm -hmm. um, and that included the, the importance of the witch's marks and how to investigate a witch and what kind of tests you can do to discover if someone is a witch or not. You mentioned drowning. I think that is something Ducking. that came from this book. Ducking, yep. And this book is key to the colonial spread of witch hunting. So I will end this episode here, but next week, yes. or not next week, but in our next episode, we'll be crossing across, going across the pond to talk about... Um, to listen to the next episode next week, if you're listening yeah. to this weeks after we put it out. <laughs> next time. Next time we'll be talking about American witchcraft yeah. and the Salem witch trials. And they were heavily influenced mm -hmm. by this book um yeah we will be talking about as well um creation of nation basically 
and how mm-hmm. the kind of colonial aspects of using witch trials to create and maintain political power very much transferred over the pond. And yeah, I might be talking about something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time and we'll probably still do a full episode on, but we might touch on some nocturnal ritual fantasy ideas. So yeah, join us next time for the, I think, third reappearance of ergotism on the Ghoul Guide Association. (laughs) And yeah, thank you for that, Mary. There was lots of things I learned, lots of things I realized I didn't know, but I knew or I thought it was something different. And I think... Uh, yeah you can we can already see how much like interlapping there is and interlapping that's not a word I it is now <laughs> yes. an intertextuality and interweaving of all these different periods and contexts thank you for saving me as you always do saving yeah. my face saving my grace <laughs> uh, but yeah that was fantastic thank you Mary Miss Going if you want to hear more about any of the stuff that we talked about in this episode um, make sure you either drop us a comment or reply to the Q&A on Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening to you can also email us at gullguide666 at gmail.com you can find us on Instagram under the same name you can fund our trip to Lancaster on Kofi but of course you don't actually have to do any of those things but if you are watching this on a platform and you haven't liked subscribed or followed please do if you'd like to leave us a review please do but please don't be too mean because we'll probably cry um and (laughs) we're very fragile uh but yeah all of those things help us help us grow and create more content and in the meantime from both of us stay safe and stay spooky Stay safe and stay spooky. Bye. Don't kill witches.